teaching of the Buddha is one of self-responsibility. We have to take the responsibility for all of our actions, be they physical, verbal or mental. Whatever we do will have some results, effects or consequences, which can either be good or bad, beneficial or not beneficial, or wholesome and unwholesome. And these results or effects, they affect ourselves and others, as we are part of the whole and connected to the whole world. All of our actions affect our near, near environment and even far away places. For example, scientists have found that the movement of a butterfly's wing in the jungle of the Amazonas can be the cause for a hurricane in Latin America. All of our actions, even very small and seemingly insignificant ones, produce effects or results of one kind or another. We should be aware of this fact and reflect well on the suitability of our intended deeds. We must be responsible for ourselves and become self-reliant. Nobody can save us and nobody else can give us real protection. By taking responsibility for our life, at the same time, we protect our life. Most of what we encounter in our life comes as the effect or result of a previous deed. What we encounter in our lives doesn't come at random, but it, falls, it follows the very strict law of cause and effect. When there is a cause, there will be an effect. When there is no cause, there will be no effect. Or look from the other side. If there is an effect, a result, then there must have been a cause. And if we don't have a result or an effect, that means that there hasn't been a cause. It's quite simple and straightforward. There is always a connection to who and what we encounter in our life. And on the basis of the law of cause and effect, we are also responsible to we are responsible for what happens to us. The results or effects are just a natural outcome of uh, previous deeds. We cannot blame anything or anybody for what happens to us in the course of our life. So we should learn to face the challenges of life with mindfulness and consideration, with forgiveness, patience, loving-kindness 
and honesty. And to be able to do so, we need to be energetic, persevering and diligent. Endowed with these qualities, we can take our life in our hands and so become self-reliant. This is the path to success, as pointed out by the Buddha. The Buddha set an example by walking this path to the very end, and many of his disciples up to the present day have done it too. My teacher, Jamie Sayadol, has written many verses that the Burmese yogis, the Burmese meditators, chant before the Dhamma talk or at the beginning of um, certain ceremonies. Not only do the meditators chant these verses, but also the helpers who stay at the meditation center. Um, they meet in the evening to do some chanting, and so then they also chant these verses. One of these verses contains a number of qualities that are needed for a successful practice. This verse has become one of the most popular verses because it is short and contains the most important ingredients for a successful practice. This verse rhymes in the Burmese version and therefore it can easily be memorized. In English it goes like this. To avoid all evil, to cultivate good, to purify one's mind, to speak, act and think with mindfulness and consideration, to be truthful, forgiving, patient and loving, to always be energetic and perseverant. Applying these qualities everywhere leads to success. As you can see, the ingredients for a successful practice are not some mysterious or unattainable qualities of the mind. On the contrary, they are quite common and simple states of mind that all of us are endowed with to a certain degree. Through the development of these qualities, they become powerful and strong and so can cut through the veil of delusion and free us from all the defilements. The path to success is not as difficult and complicated as it seems to appear or as we imagine it to be. The ingredients are quite simple and plain. The difficulty lies only in the constant and systematic application of them. If we would make use of every single ingredient right now and apply them constantly, we would all leave from this place as little Buddhas. 
Nowadays, every sh everything should be instant. We have instant soups, instant teas, instant photos, instant horoscope. These kind of instant things are already old-fashioned. The instant trend has gone to other areas like the communication field. And also in the field of medicine, the research goes on to invent new medicines that can cure a disease with one application, to cure it on the spot, or at least within a short time. But this kind of healing only cures the symptoms. Very rarely are the roots of a particular disease completely eradicated. However, many people do not care and they want the quick fix because they want to continue to function in whatever situation they find themselves in. The Buddha's teaching, the Dhamma, is compared to medicine that not only relieves the symptoms, but also has the power and ability to uproot all the causes for our suffering and unsatisfactoriness. The Dhamma is the medicine for perfect mental health. And to make the medicine most effective, we must mix the different ingredients together and then constantly apply the medicine until we are fully cured. Of the ingredients that are mentioned in this verse, I would like to talk about some of them. Mindfulness meditation is about being aware of what is happening in this present moment in our body and in our mind. It's a quite simple yet very effective method that doesn't require a lot of theoretical understanding. However, when we try to apply it in our meditation practice, we come to realize that it is not that easy at all. Our minds do not want to stay in the present. They are not used to stay still in one place. They, they take great delight in roaming about the past or creating fantasies about the future. And a frequent occurrence are thoughts of resentment, of anger and dislike. If somebody has caused us some suffering or if it was even the slightest irritation, we are immediately caught up in these thoughts of anger, resentment or dislike. From our point of view, it's so obvious that the other person has been the cause for our suffering. We are the victim and we are to be pitied. Whatever fault there is, it lies out there with the other person or 
with the situation. We are blameless. Thoughts of anger, resentment or dislike are very juicy thoughts because they actually heighten the sense of self. And they are very seductive emotions because they enforce a strong sense of self. And the sense of self, of course, likes that. So if we are not aware of these kinds of thoughts, then we will easily fall prey to them and get entangled. These thoughts of resentment and dislike, they can be countered by forgiveness. Forgiveness is a good way to start a retreat or also to start a new day, to start a new year. Forgiveness is a way of letting go of the past and come to terms with it. It's a renewal, a new start or a fresh beginning. Whatever has been, we forgive what has been, we let it go. So as we forgive the other person and ourselves for whatever harm or suffering that has been created, our hearts become lighter and a healing of the open wounds can take place. First of all, when we do forgiveness practice, we should forgive ourselves for any harm or suffering that we have caused to other sentient beings. And then we should forgive ourselves for any harm or suffering that we have caused to ourselves. And lastly, we should forgive other living beings for any harm, suffering or irritation that they have created for us. So a good way to start a morning, early morning sitting, is to start with a few minutes of forgiving. And so we could put it into these phrases. In many ways, I have caused harm and suffering to other beings. I forgive myself. In many ways, I have caused harm and suffering to myself. I forgive myself. In many ways, I have been harmed by others. I forgive them. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we approve of an unwholesome or even an unlawful deed that has been done. Rather, it is a way of unburdening of our heart unburdening it of the burning heat that normally accompanies thoughts of anger, resentment and dislike. The practice of forgiveness can not only greatly reduce the fuel which is necessary for the fire to keep burning, but it even can completely extinguish 
uh, the fuel which is necessary for these thoughts to keep um, arising. If we do not forgive, then we live with hatred, resentment and anger, or even with the desire for revenge. Or we bear a grudge against the person who has done some harm to us. But all these kinds of thoughts, they are like poison for our heart. These thoughts of anger or resentment are compared to swallowing poison ourselves and then expecting the enemy to die of it. It's quite obvious that these thoughts of anger, resentment are unwholesome and not beneficial at all. On top of that, resentment and anger are also mind-altering emotions which can have a devastating effect on our thinking. And not only that, also our bodies become agitated, the heart becomes restricted, or the chest feels tight, or even the blood pressure can, um, can rise. All these are quite unpleasant side effects of anger and resentment. When we think that we are the victim of another person's deed, then we look at the situation from a wrong angle or from a misguided point of view. This view emerges from the very narrow frame of our projections, which are based on our delusion. If we could stay mindful and alert all the time and be aware of what is entering through the six sense doors, which are the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind, then we could um, come to realize that it is actually our unskillful reaction that causes suffering. The cause of our suffering never lies outside of us. It's only through our ignorance that the multitude of suffering and unsatisfactoriness arises. With this realization, we could easily forgive and abandon all thoughts of anger, resentment, dislike or hatred. Even if we haven't come yet to this realization, we still should make an effort to forgive, especially to forgive ourselves. We can be so hard on ourselves and as a result have feelings of unworthiness or low self-esteem. Most of the time, others are much more forgiving of ourselves than we are. And most of the time, we are also much more forgiving of others than ourselves. Why are we so hard on ourselves? 
Why don't we want to pull out the arrow that is stuck in our heart? Being a nun, I have discovered a beautiful practice that nuns and monks do when they leave a place. When a nun or a monk is going to another place, it is custom that she or he goes to see the abbess or the abbot of the monastery to pay respect and ask um, for forgiveness. So then, paying respect, the nun or the monks ask for forgiveness for any harm or suffering that had been done through her or his actions of body, speech and mind. And so then the abbess or the abbot says that everything has been forgiven and in turn he or she also asks for forgiveness for any harm that had been created through actions of body, speech and mind. In this way, both sides can part with a pure heart, free from any resentment or hatred. If we do not forgive, then we carry these thoughts of resentment or anger with us for days, weeks, months, and even for years. And this can be a heavy burden that weighs down our mind. It's actually unnecessary baggage that occupies a lot of space in our mind. To demonstrate the excess baggage that overweight people carry with them, they are given a backpack of, let's say, 30 pounds. If a person is overweight, 30 pounds, so then this person has to carry a backpack of 30 pounds. Carrying a backpack of 30 pounds makes us quite tired, even exhausted, if we have to carry it for a couple of hours walking in the woods. So then, when this person finally can put down the backpack, he or she feels a great relief. In the same way, we would feel very relieved if we could put down the burdensome thoughts of resentment, anger or hatred through the practice of forgiveness. If we learn to forgive ourselves and others for any harm or suffering that has been caused in the past, then we also become more forgiving in the present when we are harmed or when any suffering is done to us. To forgive on the spot means to be patient with whatever is being done to us. Patience is another quality that needs to be developed on the spiritual path in order to progress. In Pali it is called Kanti and it is one of the ten perfections, one of the paramis.
We should learn to be patient with everyone, but above all, we should be patient with ourselves. We need to accept our shortcomings and imperfections in the practice and should not become disheartened if things are not going the way we want them to go. Our attitude should be that of a beginner with an open heart. If we patiently can witness the ongoing process in the body and mind, then we will not be driven by our desires or wants to react immediately. A lack of patience compels us to react immediately, compulsively, to whatever um, unwanted thing that comes up. And if we do that, we just continue to be the slaves of our desires and wants. With patience, however, we can sit back, relax, and just be witnessing the different phenomena arising in the body and mind. It would be so easy if we could be patient, if there was no sense of self involved. Understanding the law of cause and effect can help us to be more patient, especially in cases when we think that great injustice has been done to us. The great Tibetan master Milarepa had to prove his patience when he asked for teachings from the famous master Marpa. Before Marpa would teach him anything, he asked Milarepa to build a stone tower. So Milarepa went off, gathered stones, and started to build this tower. It took him quite some time until he had finished this tower, and then he went back to his teacher Marpa and told him that he had completed the task. But Marpa only told him to tear down the tower and to build it in a different place. So again, Milarepa went off, pulled the tower down, carried the stones to a different place, and built it again. After a long time, he had completed it and went back to Marpa. And again, this time, Marpa only replied that the tower was in the wrong place, that he should pull it down and build again in a different place. And again, Milarepa patiently went, teared down the whole tower and built it again in a different place. So then for the third time, he went back to Marpa, told him that the tower had been finished. Only then Marpa started to give him uh, teachings. If it hadn't been for Milarepa's patience, 
he would never have received teachings from his great master, Marpa. Milarepa not only needed a great portion of patience, but also effort and perseverance. Effort or energy is another indispensable uh, factor for success in the practice. Not only in our spiritual practice, but actually also for worldly matters. Without effort or energy, nothing can be accomplished. This fact is reflected in the repeated occurrence of effort or energy in different groups of mental phenomena. In the set of the 37 requisites of enlightenment, effort or energy, virya, occurs altogether nine times. It's many, uh, it occurs there as the four great endeavors, effort as a means of accomplishment, effort as a faculty, effort as a power, effort as an enlightenment factor, and effort as a factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. Other mental states also occur more than one time, but none of them as many times as effort or energy. Time and again, the Buddha stressed the need for effort, for diligence, for energy, and for unflagging perseverance. The reason why effort is so crucial is that each person has to work out his or her own deliverance. The Buddha does what he can by pointing out the path, but it is up to us to put the path into practice, and this needs energy. This needs effort. The transformation of the mind is not an easy task and it only can be accomplished when we persevere, when we put energy into this transformation. As the defilements are so strongly rooted, we should never give up and uh, be perseverant until all the defilements have completely been uprooted. Walking on the path, we have come, we have come to realize that it is not so easy, but it's also not impossible. It's doable. Even great and realized beings have not been spared to make an effort themselves. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, in his great modesty, put it in these words, and this is a quote from about 15 years ago. Within a short time span, 
It is impossible to change all our concepts or the entire attitude of our mind. It needs constant application. Speaking from my own small experience, from the age of about 16 or 17, I began to make some serious effort to change and improve my outlook. Now, at 55, some 39 years have gone by. Several decades have passed. Yet still the result is not satisfactory. We do have to struggle and to work hard. And this is the reality. Even if a great being like His Holiness the Dalai Lama speaks like this, can we expect it to be different for us? The Buddha and many of his disciples up to the present day have proved that the highest goal can be achieved and that it is not beyond our reach. And all those who have walked the path encourage us to persevere and not to weaken our effort as progress is sometimes slow or not apparent at all. Here is an analogy to illustrate this point. For chickens to hatch, it takes a certain period of time until they are big and strong enough to destroy the shell with their beaks. After the mother hen has laid the eggs, she sits on them day after day. Although there is no change to be seen from the outside, she continues to sit on the eggs. Two weeks, three weeks go by, and each day she goes and sits on the eggs. From the outside, nothing seems to be happening. The eggs look the same all the time. But inside, great changes are taking place. A big transformation is happening. From the fertilized egg, a little chicken starts to grow, to develop. It slowly grows and becomes bigger. The body takes shape and all the different organs develop. Finally, after 28 days, the little chicken is big and strong enough that it can destroy the shell from the inside and hatch. If it hadn't been for the persistent effort of the mother hen sitting on the egg day after day, the little chicken wouldn't have developed. If the mother hen had given up after 10 days or 15 days because nothing seemed to be happening, then the little chicken would have died at that stage. Very near to our forest center in Burma, there is a chicken farm. They do not breed the chickens to get meat, but um, they breed them to sell the little chickens. When the chickens, the mother hens, 
later x, the eggs are collected and then put into an incubator. In that incubator, it takes only 21 days for the little chickens to hatch. That's because the temperature in the incubator is constant and therefore the development of the little chickens can take place steadily and without any interruptions. In the natural world, the mother hen has to get up sometimes to search for food or to answer the call of nature. So then, when the mother hen is up, the eggs do not get the necessary warmth and this consequently causes a longer period of time for the development of the little chickens. In our meditation practice, it is the same. If we, would, if we could constantly apply everything that is needed to make progress on the path, we surely would make steady progress towards our goal. A constant and persistent effort will show its result within a short time. However, with gaps in the practice, the progress will be slower. And then that, at the same time, it requires even more energy and effort to get it going again. Effort or energy is divided into four groups. They are called the four great endeavors. Myoshin has talked about them a couple of weeks ago. Just to recollect these four great endeavors, it's to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states, or it's to abandon the unwholesome states which have already arisen. It's to arouse the wholesome states which have not yet arisen and it's to maintain the wholesome states which already have arisen. So the unwholesome states need to be prevented from arising or when they have arisen we need to abandon them. And the wholesome states we need to develop them and once they have arisen we should try to maintain them, to strengthen them. So our effort, our energy should be directed at the liberation of our mind. It should be directed at decreasing and finally uprooting all of our defilements. When His Holiness the Dalai Lama was asked how one can measure spiritual progress, he said, well, take a little time, let's say 10 or 15 years, then look if there is a positive change in your life. Some of you may know Pablo Casals, who is a very famous cellist. 
His fame spread far and wide in the classical music world, especially through his interpretations of pieces by Johann Sebastian Bach. Listening to his cello sonatas many years back when I was still playing music myself, listening to his cello sonatas was such an exquisite experience. Anyway, now he is in his 90s and he still practiced four or five hours every day on his cello when he was 90 years old. And to the question why, he answered, because I think I still make progress. To illustrate another ingredient that is important for success in the practice or on the path, first let me tell you the story of the pots with the stones and the butter. One day a young man came to the Buddha and he was crying and weeping. As he couldn't talk because he was so much crying, the Buddha finally asked him, what has happened, young man? And so the young man finally replied that the previous day his old father had died. And so the Buddha said, well, if he has died, um, what can be done? Do you think your crying and weeping will bring him back? And the young man said that he knew that it wasn't possible, but he had heard that the Buddha was such a powerful being, and so he had come to request the Buddha to do something for his deceased uh, father. He said that there were other priests and ascetics who would, who would perform a ritual and by doing that, that the soul of the deceased person was freed and would get entry into the heavens. So he requested the Buddha to do something for his father. But the poor man was so overwhelmed by his grief that he couldn't follow any logical argument. And so the Buddha had to find another way to make him understand. And so he ordered him to go to the market and buy two earthen pots. The young man went happily to the market thinking that the Buddha had agreed to perform a magic ritual. So he came back with the two earthen pots and then the Buddha asked him to fill one pot with little stones and the other pot with butter. The young man did it and after that the Buddha told him to seal the pots and after that to take the pots and put them into the nearby pond. The young man did as the Buddha told him and putting them 
into the pond, they immediately sank to the ground. Then the Buddha told him to get a long stick and strike on the pots so that they break. So taking a stick and striking on the pots, finally they broke. And immediately the butter that was contained in one of the pots came up to the surface and was floating on the surface of the water. The little stones in the other pot, they just spilled out and remained on the ground of the pond. Then the Buddha said to the young man, well, young man, this much I have done. Now go and call the priests and ascetics and tell them to start chanting and praying like this. All oh, little stones, all oh, little stones, come up, come up. O oh, butter, O oh, butter, go down, go down. The young man looked surprised to the Buddha and said, but venerable sir, how is this possible? You must be making a joke. The little stones are heavier than the water, so they are bound to stay at the bottom. How can they come up? This is a natural law. And the butter is lighter than the water, so it is bound to come up. How can it stay down? This is a natural law. Young man, said the Buddha, you know, you know much about the law of nature, but you have not understood this natural law. If all his life your father performed deeds that were heavy like little stones, he is bound to go down. Who can bring him up? And if all his actions were light as butter, he is bound to go up. Who can pull him down? What we do and how we do things is of great importance. I already mentioned the law of cause and effect a couple of times. This law of cause and effect not only works on the material plane, but according to the Buddha, it also works on the mental plane. In the same way that it is only natural that the little stones will sink down to the bottom of the pond, so it is only natural that any unwholesome deed results in unwholesome effects. Neither prayer, nor ritual, nor the interference of a higher force or a god can make the butter sink to the ground. These are the natural laws that keep the world and the cycle of life always turning. On the material plane, these natural laws are easier to recognize. We can perceive them with our senses. We can see 
when we throw a stone into a pond, it will immediately sink um, to the ground. Or if we put a block of ice out into the sun, then it's only natural that the ice will melt. That's just natural. We wouldn't expect it to be different. The processes of the mental level or mental plane, they do not happen at random, but they too, they follow the very strict law of cause and effect. Having committed an unwholesome deed, there will be inevitably an unwholesome effect. Nor prayer or ritual or miracle has the power to nullify this deed. So we see how important it is to refrain from evil, to perform good, and to purify the mind. As long as the mind is muddled with all kinds of different defilements, it is very difficult to discern the good and beneficial from those things which are not beneficial, which are not good. A defiled mind looks at the world in a distorted way. The different defilements can be compared to colored glasses. If we look at the world with a layer of colored glasses, we will not see the world in its original purity. Inevitably, we will have a distorted view. And as long as we are under the influence of the defilements, we need some outside guidance to show us what is good and beneficial and what is evil and unwholesome. And these guidelines regarding our physical and verbal actions are called the precepts. They are a set of rules which guide or which are conducive to blameless and wholesome actions. And they contribute a lot to harmony within and around us. I have talked about the precepts about sila um, in my last talk. So once we know what these guidelines or precepts involve, we must be mindful and live and act accordingly. So trying not to transgress them. So whenever we are about to do something, we should consider the circumstances and whether this act will be helpful and beneficial. In this talk, we have looked at some of the <coughs> ingredients that are necessary for progress on the path. Each of these ingredients has its own flavor and characteristic and may taste very nice if it is taken alone. 
However, when we mix together all the different ingredients in the right amounts, then we get a unique blend which will be much more powerful and whose strength is multiplied many times. Then the constant and systematic application of this unique blend will yield results within a short time and make the path to success an easy and swift one. Let's sit for a few moments. May we all swiftly penetrate the Dhamma and become fully liberated. Let's chant the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, 
the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces celestial beings guardian spirits of the earth and the lord of death may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.